0: I have a hard job today, just talking about the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, there would be no reason for me to even try to do what I want to try to do today. I have to try to show you how sinful we are as human beings, all except Jesus, Right, that we're sinful right down to the very depths of our heart. It's not an easy thing to do. So if you look in the catechism study today, you'll see that we are at question 18. And that's what this question talks about. Let's answer the question in unison. Question 18. What is the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell? The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin the want of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Nobody really wants to admit all of this, not unless God's spirit gets hold of them first. And even then, we don't really want to face the true depths of our corrupt condition. We want to minimize our sin. We want to say that it's not really that bad. Children, you know how it is if you get in a quarrel with someone. You always think that what you did was not as bad as what the other person did. Adults are like that too. Very hard to admit our sin. People quarrel, they almost never quarrel about uh, saying, oh no, I, w- I was the one that, that wronged you. It's always the other way around. And this is even more the case when we're talking about the sinful corruption that, that permeates our whole being. So I have a hard job today, but it's also a very important job. It's important because as long as people don't face their sin, they can't see their need of Christ and his salvation. They don't believe that they deserve to go to hell. And they don't believe that God's son needed to come and suffer the pains of hell for them, for their forgiveness. That's the way most people think. That's why false religions are so acceptable to people. They're appealing. One of the things that characterizes false religion, you can check out any false religion. And one of the things that you'll find that always characterize them is that they really don't take human condition of sin seriously. They always minimize it. This is true of Mormonism. It's true of Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower people. It's true of Judaism. It's true of liberal Christianity. It's true of Unitarianism. It's true of the prosperity gospel. We could go on and on with examples. If they admit their sinful estate at all, They only admit it in a superficial way and have superficial solutions that really don't solve the problem. Not the only real solution that we have to have Christ alone as our Savior. Only faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, can truly solve the problem when we understand the depth of the problem. And even for those who have trusted in Jesus There is still a lot that we have not yet faced about our true condition. In other words, we need to grow in our understanding of sin. Didn't we see that this morning in the sermon that the disciples were not really aware of their great need? They thought, oh, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll we can be baptized with the baptism you're baptized with. We can uh, drink the cup that you're going to drink. They had no idea. It's only then it's only uh, when we see our sin that we can love Jesus the way that we should. He said that the person who is forgiven much loves much. And when we first, sometimes if you've had a very, very uh, outwardly wicked life and you were converted, then uh, you may have a very strong love for Jesus when you see how he's forgiven you. But, you know, if you grew up in a Christian home, you should actually be even further ahead because you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and you of all people know what Sin really is, and what it's about, and you see all of the the dirtiness and the filthiness in ways that um the that, that those who have not known the Lord as long would not see. So you should be one who is especially grateful for your forgiveness, and who delight in the forgiveness of the Lord. So it's important to look at this and see how our what our true condition, the sinfulness of our true condition, so that. Even when we don't want to look at it, it's good for us. Our Old Testament scripture reading today from Genesis 6, we read that because, we read that because it talks about how God was so grieved with what, man, what he found in man. Uh, so grieved that he determined that he would destroy them all. The earth was full of people and God sent a flood to wipe out everyone because of their wickedness. And this is a testimony to us of what God thinks about sin that stands for all history. At that time, we're told how he says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a very strong statement. Only evil continually. That's true. And I mentioned this when we read it, but it's striking that after the flood, it's actually in Genesis 8.21, when only Noah and his family are left, the Lord repeats that that's still the case. Even our best works are all corrupted by sin. They are not performed with a proper love to God, with a proper love to our neighbor, or even if there is just a, a trace of and even if there is just a trace of such sin before our holy God, it's highly offensive. That's why he declares throughout the Bible, that even his own people who serve him are defiled and need to be cleansed from their sin. For example, John says in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. In other words, so you're somebody that's walking in the light. You're not walking in falsehood. You're walking with God in the truth of the gospel, walking in the light. And If you do that, it says the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, why does somebody walking in the light need to be cleansed from their sin? It's because we all have sin that remains in us. For our New Testament scripture reading, I've selected Romans three, which speaks of how sinful and guilty we are, and how justification or righteousness can only be found in Christ. We can't lift ourselves out of our sin. He has uh, Paul has just been talking about how Jesus. I mean, how Jews are not righteous. Just because they have the law, that was a mistake they made. You know, we know the right way, so we're righteous and all those Gentiles out there are not. No, he's been talking about how that's very misguided for them to think that way. In fact, having the law, they should see all the more their sin than the people of the world do. They should be the ones that are the most humble. But you see, in our pride, we're, we're often not. But uh, it, it makes it all the more clear when we have the law of, of our great need. So listen as I read to you from God's Word and we see something of our condition described here. Romans 3, beginning in verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what prophet, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, the things that God reveals to us. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? You see he's asking, are are we Jews who have the law, are we better than the Gentiles? He says, not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. Okay, so he's saying everybody, people in the covenant, people outside the covenant, all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So if the law has this sort of condemnation of us, it's speaking to the people that have the law. And that's what it says about them. What does that say about people who don't even know God's law? That all the world may become guilty before God. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Again, what I said before, Those who have the law should be the ones who see their sin the most, not the least. 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, no but by the law of faith therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law or is he the god of the jews only is he the god is he not also the god of the gentiles yes of the gentiles also since there is one god who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith do we then make void the law of god through faith certainly not on the contrary We establish the law. May God bless to us the reading of his holy and infallible word. So you see that sin is such a serious issue that the only way to become righteous is through justification by Jesus Christ. Far from making the law unimportant, this teaches us that living up to the law is absolutely necessary It can't be set aside as a requirement. Since we can't do it by our own works, God has sent Jesus to meet the requirement of the law for us. It's not at all that God decided to set aside the law when he came to save man. Just the opposite. He fully upholds it by sending his son to obey it and to bear all of its penalties that were charged against us. But the main thing I want you to see and note from this passage in connection with today's question is the, the extent to which sin has affected us all that it talks about. Paul speaks of everything from our conduct to our motives. Tells says that we don't even seek God. So now I want to endeavor with God's help, with the help of His Spirit, to show you what I said I was going to do today, the sinfulness of that estate whereunto we are fallen. We'll take up each of the assertions that the Catechism makes. Okay, first of all, our sinful estate includes the guilt of Adam's first sin. We've seen before that we are just as guilty of eating the forbidden fruit as if we had done it ourselves. Adam was our first father, and he represented all of us, and he acted for us. We saw that in question 16 that we all sinned in him and fell with him when he ate the forbidden fruit in that first transgression. We looked at that time at Romans 5 where it explains that death spread to everyone, to all men, because all sinned in Adam. I explained to you that as our first father, Adam was like the trunk of a tree that was rooted in God. And uh, we were all like branches come out of that tree. And that tree, when Adam severed himself from God by his sin, was cut off. And so Adam, the trunk, and all the branches that come out of him, all of his posterity, were cut off. We sinned when he sinned. That first sin was the great sin of us all that separated us from God. Now we were forever severed unless we be restored by God's mercy. And if it is true that we all sinned in Adam and fell with him, it's also true that we bear what question, 18, what question 18 says, the guilt of Adam's first sin. We bear the guilt and the blame of being those who rejected God, is our God. Romans 3.20 concluded that we're all guilty before God. We come forth from the womb as God's enemies. Ephesians 2.1 says that we, we are all dead in trespasses and sins. How is that? We died in Adam, walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We are the sons of disobedience. And it says that we are by nature the children of wrath. Children of wrath. That means that we're under God's wrath. We're guilty before God. Now, how great is our guilt for that first sin of rejecting God as our God? It's the most horrendous thing that we did. God made us. He has authority to rule over us. And our duty is to love him and to serve him. Imagine rejecting the one who made you. That's what we did. We rejected our own creator. The sin is all the more heinous when you consider that the one who rejected, the the, the one that we rejected is a holy and just God. He's a gracious, bountiful, kind God who is love who blessed us richly with abilities and provisions and delights of every sort, with companionship. He is so full of love and mercy toward us. It would be one thing to reject a tyrant. It would be somewhat understandable. But we rejected God, who is love. Not only that, but our sin is aggravated by the fact that we rejected him in exchange for what is ugly and defiled, for sin, for Satan. We did not come to a master that was better than God, but one that was infinitely worse. We didn't come even to one that was almost as good, but to one that is very corrupt and wicked. It's because of this guilt, this great guilt, that in justice, we're sentenced to death and hell. Just as in Adam, we all sin, so in Adam, we all die lest we come to Jesus Christ for pardon and new life, that is. So we don't even have to do anything more to be worthy of hell. Rejecting God was quite enough. You deserve to go to hell before you were even born. We're guilty of original sin. And I, and I mean to, uh, that we're, we deserve to die eternally to be cast into the lake of fire forever, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is why the Bible presents us as needing to be redeemed and why every one of us, including our infant children in the visible church, are given the covenant sign of baptism. It shows us that our only hope is that God would wash us from the guilt of Adam's first sin through Jesus Christ. So we are all guilty. The next thing the catechism speaks of after speaking of the guilt of Adam's first sin is the want of original righteousness. Now, of course, the word want is used in the old way that it would mean the lack of that, the lack of original righteousness. Like in Psalm 23, when you say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack anything. This original sin speaks of the righteousness that we had when God first made us. Solomon declares by the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes 7.29 that God made man upright. We saw that this was so when we looked at the creation of man back in question 10. That God made us after his own image. Remember that? In knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. We were not sinful. We were righteous. We had original righteousness. This original righteousness is not the same thing as justification. Justification is God's declaration that we are righteous before him. For those who trust in Christ is the declaration that they are righteous through Christ. That because his godly life and his sacrifice for our sins was accepted for us as sinners, that we're accepted through union with him, through faith in him. Adam would presumably have been justified or declared righteous if he had simply continued to walk with God as his God instead of rebelling against him. He had righteousness from the get-go. But original righteousness speaks of the righteous character that we had when God, it speaks of the righteous character we had when God first made us. That God was was pleased with us. He looked on all that he had made and and, and he said that it was good. But then he looked on all that he had made after he made us and he said it was very good. There was no spot or no blemish in our character. We loved God. We loved each other. And we had no corruption or sin. There was original righteousness. But when Adam fell... We lost that. Now we start out as corrupt and defiled. And and what I mean by that, you see, this is different than guilt. I'm not talking about justifying righteousness. I'm talking about a character. A righteous character is original righteousness. And so we start out now with a character that's corrupt and defiled. Little babies are not so innocent as people want to think. At birth, we are not only guilty of Adam's first sin, but we're also corrupted by it so that our character is ruined and we're slaves to sin. And and we have been without this original righteousness since conception. That's why in Psalm 51, in verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not saying that his mother uh, had... Committed uh, sexual immorality, was fornicating when she uh, conceived him, but he's saying that that tiny he was a tiny little sinner, as soon as he was conceived, that was his character. Romans three describes how wretched we all are with this lack of original righteousness. As we saw it, we read it earlier in t- verses ten through sixteen. God speaking of the whole human race after the fall says. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. That's our character. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. We went from being upright being wicked and corrupt. How badly we live and we don't even see it. We're used to it. We're familiar with it. It's all around us. The catechism goes goes on to state how far this corruption spread into each one of us. It says next that our sinful estate involves the corruption of our whole nature. Whole nature. This is what sometimes is referred to as the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly can be. That's not the doctrine of total depravity. What it means is that, let me say, we could be a whole lot worse. God graciously restrains our sin in this world. He holds us back and he keeps us from going as far into sin as we might otherwise go. If he completely abandoned us as far as we would go. We have a conscience and we still have a memory of God and of his law in our hearts. And that restrains us and we're restrained by the police and we're restrained by shame of things that uh, other people would look down on so total depravity is not that we're as bad as we can be total depravity speaks of the corruption of our whole nature of the entirety of our nature of every every part of us there's not one part of us that's not corrupted by sin that's the idea that's also the picture that we get in Romans 3. Nothing in us that's untouched. Nothing that is acceptable. Not one thing in us. That's why it speaks so strongly, because it's talking about these areas of the, in which we live, different aspects of us, are all ruined by sin. There's not anything that's not touched. It's got its finger everywhere. This is often illustrated with a glass of water. At creation, we were like a glass of pure water. It was uh it didn't have any any poison in it, nothing defiled, it was a state of original righteousness. But at the fall, we became like a glass of water with deadly poison in it. It could be one drop of poison. There's still no part of that water that's not tainted by the poison. It's ruined. It could be that it's almost pure poison, and it would be utterly ruined. But Either way, the water is poisoned throughout. That's us. This is why God could say in Genesis 6, what we read, that every thought and intent of our heart was only evil continually. Not that it was pure evil, but that there was evil in everything that we do. It affects us, it ruins our way before him. He could say that because everything we do and everything that we are is tainted with sin. Nothing about us is acceptable before a holy God. Consider what the Bible says about the sinful corruption of the different parts of us. First, the Bible says, tells us that our minds are defiled. We can't even think in a godly way. Sin messed up our heads so badly that the truth, truth which ought to be self-evident, clear, obvious, seems like foolishness to us. Romans 10, 11 says, there is none who understands. Romans 1 gets into this when it talks about creation. We've talked about this quite a lot along the way in these early stages of the Catechism, how that God's eternal power and divine nature ought to be obvious to everyone just by looking at what he's made. The design of a leaf, of a butterfly, of the, or of the sun, or of a human being. Purely remarkable, the design in that. Yet men are so blind by sin that they can look at all of these things and say that there's no designer. It's incredible blindness. And Romans 1 goes on to say that this blindness leads to even more blindness so that God turns them over to a reprobate mind reverbate mind is a mind that can't distinguish between right and wrong. Romans 1 uses a specific example of men burning with sexual passion after other men and women after other women, and then speaks of all sorts of other perversions that people don't even acknowledge to be wrong. But look at yourself. You all experience this blindness to some extent, even as Christians. How many times have you convinced yourself that something you're doing is not bad and then had God shine the light upon you and expose you and you realize that it really was wrong? It's embarrassing and shameful how blind we can be to ourselves. And when it comes to the gospel, if left to our own fallen, corrupt nature, gospel looks like foolishness. The gospel looks like foolishness to us. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, but the natural man... Without God's Spirit working in him, left to himself, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The light, God God is light, and the Spirit reveals what is truth. It says, For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The gospel that is so wonderful and so wise doesn't make sense to us until God renews us by his grace. Second Corinthians 4.4 explains, the God of this age has blinded the minds of those that do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So you see then, when we look at total depravity, our minds are corrupted. We, we, we're unable to see clearly. That's not all that's corrupted. Our hearts are also corrupted. We, we love vile things and we don't love God. One of the things that distinguished Christ from the rest of us more than anything is described in Hebrews one nine. This is how he was so different than, than us. The father says of him, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Think about that, that Loving, he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Our corruption is seen because we have a fondness for wickedness. And we don't love purity and righteousness. We saw this in our Old Testament scripture reading. In ten of our thoughts of our hearts, only evil continually. God is the one who ought to be loved above all, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is altogether lovely, glorious, beautiful, worthy of all honor. But in our fallen estate, we love idols, which are our own versions of God, our revisions of God. There's none who seeks after God. And we love selfish gain, immorality, drunkenness. I love foreign gods, Jeremiah said of the people, the people said, and I must go after them. We love lies. We love oppression. We are in love with corruption itself instead of with God. The problem is so serious that God has to circumcise our hearts in order that we love him. If we're left in our natural condition, we will never love God. We'll never love righteousness. And Then our wills are also wrecked. We can't will to do what's good. Nothing shows this more clearly than the fact that even though God has sent His Son into the world to redeem sinners, even though He has given Himself on the cross for our sins and the Father has accepted His sacrifice, we still won't come to Him for life. That's why Jesus said to the Jews in John five thirty nine through 40 You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of Me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Corruption of will. In John 6, Jesus says that the condition of every person is so bad that not one of us is willing to come to him unless the Father draws us by force. John 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw is not the word where you kind of encourage someone along it's the word where you drag someone along. It's like a, a a rope on a horse that pulls a cart behind. A, a horse pulling the cart draws the cart. Or when you fetch water out of a well and you you pull the water up, the water is not being enticed to come to you. It's drawn up. It's pulled up. That's the way that that's what we're talking about here. If left to ourselves in our natural condition, we'd never come. So, you see that the fall has affected us in every part. It has left us dead in trespasses and sins. We are spiritually dead and we can do nothing to raise ourselves to life. As we saw in Romans 3, sin is all through us until Christ delivers us. Now, this sinful condition since the fall is what we are by nature. Now that we are fallen, the man in the sinful estate is called, we've mentioned it a couple of times, the natural man. He is said to be in the flesh. This is now what human flesh is. It's something sinful. What, natural, what man naturally is. Something sinful. The desires of the flesh he does rather than the desires of the spirit. They're contrary to one another. What we are is contrary to God's call and God's working in the spirit, the desires of the spirit. We're, we were not created this way, but through the fall, this is now our natural condition. See, it can be confusing to say that it's natural because it can sound like God made us that way, but he didn't. We fell into that, but now it is natural to us all because we are born in sin without original righteousness. So God has turned every member of the human race over to this sinful condition as a punishment for the first sin of rejecting him as our God. In John twelve thirty nine through 40 Jesus quotes Isaiah the prophet to explain why so many people rejected him when he came into the world to save. He says, therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Why would God do that? The reason he did that is as a punishment, a punishment we deserve for our sins. That's why we're born in the sinful way that we are, is a punishment for us. The guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of our whole nature is what the catechism reminds us is original sin. It's commonly called original sin because it goes back to the fall. That's what we're talking about here. And it is from this original sin, we move to the next point that the Catechism gives us about our sin, that uh, all of our actual transgressions proceed or issue or come forth. In other words, the reason you sin is because of original sin, because you're a natural born sinner. That's why you sin. You commit sin because you are wicked through and through. We We mix that up all the time. You know, you'll see someone. They go out and they, and they murder a bunch of people. And then they interview their mother, and then she says, "Oh, you know, he has a good heart. You know, he has such a good heart." That's not the way it is. The reason we do sinful things is because we have wicked hearts. It's it's just the opposite. The the corruption within is what we see on the outside. If anything, it gets covered up on the outside. The scripture is quite clear about that. Jesus explains that. All of our sin comes from within us, not from the outside, but from the inside, from the corruption in our hearts. In Mark 7, 21 through 23, he says, For from within, out of the heart of men, that corrupt heart, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. So it's not that you get around sinful people and then you start doing sinful things. It's true that that happens. But the reason that happens, is you learn about cool ways to sin, something you want to do already. And you get around people and say, oh, that's great. You know, and you, you join in with what they're doing. We like to turn it the other way around and say that sin comes from the temptations and the and the vile things outside of us. It's true that there are all kinds of temptations from Satan and the world that, that entice us. The reason we give in to them is because we're fallen. Because we're vile and corrupt within. We need to face that. See, that's what we don't want to face. We don't say, oh, well, I'm, I'm really good inside. I just, I just do bad things sometimes. Romans 6 describes our acts of sin as Presenting our members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. It's like here you are, and then you you present your, your body as an instrument to do evil when you're sinning. That's what you do. We're by nature slaves to sin because we're enslaved to our, our corrupt heart. Romans 6 reminds us that, that, that when we have been baptized into Jesus Christ, we have a new master. So it admonishes us, Romans 6, 12 through 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let it have dominion that you should obey it in its lust and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. It should help you to fight against sin to realize that you are serving your old master when you sin the master that Christ came to set you free from. You cannot go on doing that if you belong to Christ, presenting your members to that old master. You're not, you don't belong to that old master anymore. The sins that you commit are called works of the flesh because they come from the sinful nature that you're born with. They're the fruits of what you are by birth a corrupt sinful creature cut off from God and from the Spirit of God. The flesh cannot produce anything good. You cannot produce anything but sin apart from the grace of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 6.11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That old way, that, that sinful heart driving everything, now is replaced by a new master. You need to see the depth of the problem. Your sin is an expression of a corrupt heart that you had since birth. Like David in Psalm 59, you need to confess the depth of your problem when you commit sin. It's not only that you did wrong. It's that you are corrupt from your birth. With David, you need to learn to say Psalm 51.3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. God didn't miss it when he said we were sinful. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. With these words, David admits not only that he has committed sin, but that the reason he committed sin is because he is a sinner. His actual transgression arose out of a wicked heart that he had from birth. That's what you need to acknowledge when you lie or when you use harsh words against your children or when you fail to discipline your children when you should or when you lust or when, you, when, when your worship is cold and indifferent toward God. It's because of what you are from birth that you do these things. You're not acting out of character. You're acting in character. David recognizes that God requires a complete cleansing, not only of the sins that he has committed, but also of the sin with which he was born of his very nature. Psalm 51 6 says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, not just in the life actions. The Lord requires more than surface cleansing. So, do you see from this? how great your sin is? Do you see that you're totally enslaved to it and that you can't free yourself? Do you see that you need to have a deep cleansing? That's what the scripture clearly teaches. So what can you do? You must come to the Lord Jesus Christ for complete cleansing that he provides. David goes on to anticipate this deep cleansing. Listen to the rest of verse 6. I'll read it to you from the beginning of the verse psalm fifty one six behold you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Do you see the hope there? God will make him clean within according to his promise in verse seven it goes on psalm fifty one seven purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. They would use hyssop for the Baptisms, the cleansings that they had, they dip the hyssop in the water and, and sprinkled the water on the people. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isn't it marvelous? He will be perfectly clean if God cleanses him on the inside as well as the outside. In Romans 6, we're told the source of this deep cleansing. It is our baptism into Jesus Christ not just talking about the sign with water, but the cleansing that comes when we're truly baptized by His Spirit so that we die with Him to sin and we're raised to new life and righteousness. Let me read the encouraging words of Romans 6, 3-6 to you. Or do you not know that as many of us as were are baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death, we were brought into connection with Jesus Christ so that when he died, we died. We were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We, we went to the grave with Christ, and then we came up from the grave. In other words, we, we die with him when we're converted, and then we're raised with him when we're converted. Verse five, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin, listen the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So it's, it's taken away by Christ as the core so that now I can follow him. The the point is that in Christ, we who are helpless sinners can be forgiven and restored to service to God. We can cease to be slaves of sin. We can become the slaves of God. Now, we still need forgiveness because we're not perfected, but we've got a whole new orientation. We've got a whole new life. We can have him as our God by the redemptive saving work of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Romans 6 in a lot more detail later on. When we get to uh, sanctification, we'll also look at uh, justification in more detail before we get to sanctification, where we see how his righteousness is credited to us. But you see, this is talking more here about how we're changed. Our character is changed. That sinful nature that we were born with is changed when we come to Christ so that we can serve God and so that we'll even come and believe the gospel in the first place. Thanks be to God. Let's indeed give thanks. Please stand. Merciful and gracious Father, we thank you that that you have taken us, Lord, who are so ruined by sin through and through. You know, we had uh, the guilt of Adam's first sin. We had the corruption of our whole nature. We also had the lack of original righteousness and the corruption of our whole nature. And then we have all the sins that that we commit out of that sinful nature, the actual transgressions that we have, the sins that we commit day by day. Father, there's just sin all around. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ, there's a, a turnaround, that, that we're brought into life again. We're restored, we're made whole, and we're able now to serve you. Father, we still have the old man, we still have the flesh that wars against the spirit so that we can't do the things that we want to do. But we thank you, Lord, that we can go forward more and more, and that by your grace that we can we can be overcomers, Lord. We can grow and become more and more like Christ. And we thank you that at the last day that you will bring us to perfection so that we will sin no more. Father, you've been very gracious to us. You did not leave us in our condition that into which we fell but you have graciously delivered us. Help us to encourage one another. And Father, help us not to shy away from acknowledging the true depth of the problem. The church has become very, very weak in spreading the gospel because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to tell them the true condition that they're in of sin. People object to that. They say it's terrible and that it's not right and that they don't want to believe that. They can't believe that. But Father, truly, this is what people need to understand in order that they might see why Jesus even came at all to give his life a ransom for us. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the forgiveness that we have in him. And we pray that we might, we might spread the good word of God among the nations and that we would live in it with joy and delight and that we would be filled with the sacrifice of praise to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace of God is greater than all of our sin. Now receive then the blessing of the God who is so gracious. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.